coming up on this edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. What he says, in essence, is received as de facto orthodoxy. And I mean, I'm sure that we would all say, well, great, wouldn't I love that? Well, it's, it's, um, I'm sure it's nerve-wracking, you know, for him. It's a huge, crushing responsibility that basically anything that you say is going to be taken um, as, as orthodox fact. And so the church then also has a responsibility of, of helping him, you know, double-check some, through some of the stuff to make sure that uh, it's representative of biblical truth. and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Today is September 23rd, 2013. This is broadcast number 45, and we have a really, um, what I would say, important discussion on tap for you today. We'll be sitting down and talking with the editor of a book titled Engaging with Keller, Thinking Through the Theology of an Influential Evangelical. And the editor of this book is uh, Dr. Bill Schweitzer. He currently is church planning in, um, in England, and more about that and the topic for today in just a minute. As most of you by now know, after 45 broadcasts, Confessing Our Hope has a website. It's confessingourhope.com. There you can find out all the information about the podcast, what is coming up, and what have we done in the last 45, 44 episodes. Uh, this morning, as I was commenting with our guests today, I've been running around frantically trying to get three broadcasts produced for you, the listener, that have been sitting somewhat in a folder on my computer for the longest time. And because I've just been so busy, I haven't had much time. But today I was able to clear them off that folder, and so now the, re- the general population can enjoy those discussions. As I indicated today, we'll be talking with Dr. Bill Schweitzer. He received his BA from the University of Rochester, which is, um, for those who know me and know my background, is in the same city I grew up. And in fact, he was there when I was living there. Amazing. small world. It is amazing. He's also um, a graduate of the Free Church College in Glasgow, as well as his PhD at the New College in Edinburgh. Now, he's also an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church in America and serves, as I indicated, as a church planning minister of Gateshead Presbyterian Church, of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church in England and Wales. And I've had the pleasure of meeting Dr. Schweitzer and was uh, excited to receive this book and, and, and go through it and see what are, what are the issues, what are the things that we're dealing with when we're talking about, as the title says, an influential evangelical. So Dr. Schweitzer, it's great to have you on the program today and I'm thankful the Lord worked it out so that we can meet last week we were trying to and of course <laughs> we know the story <laughs> no one else needs to know but anyway it's good to have you on well it's, it's really great to be with you i should say i appreciate your work i appreciate what this podcast does i was uh, actually sitting with a friend uh, another minister friend i won't say in what what's place but um i was there and uh, a man came excitedly up with a, a cd and a jacket and it was another one of your podcasts that he felt like everyone, uh, every minister in the city needed to uh, to hear. So you're doing good work. We appreciate it. I think I know which one that was, actually. I bet you do. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was, yeah, anyway. We, we can talk about that another day, of course. And those who listen all the time know full well which broadcast 
that likely uh, was. Well, this book we have, I have in my hands right here, um, Engaging with Color. It's an intriguing t- uh, title, um, especially for those who have even some understanding of, uh, of the influence that uh, Pastor Tim Keller, uh, I, I guess I should say doctor, he's a doctor, right? He is, yeah. Yes, I should probably say that, um, has had on the evangelical world. Um, so I guess I'll ask the question that I ask almost every author, editor of a book. Why this book? I mean, why is it so important um, in, in your estimation, of course, as putting the time into doing something like this uh, for the broader evangelical world, the Christian community at large, to understand the, the, the issues and the topics that you present in this, in this book? Well, as I, I warned you, um, that's a, a question that takes, uh, you're going to have to give me a few minutes to get through that one. Take all the time you want. As I said, Thank no, you one, very no one much. tunes well, in to listen to me anyway, <laughs> so they would rather hear you. Okay, so okay. You, well, you take the time you need. All I can say is, um, first of all, I've benefited from the ministry of Tim Keller um, with, before this church began, and we were talking through this. Uh, Dr. Keller had actually come over to England to a London conference of the Presbyterian Association of England, and there are some tapes of, uh, uh, you know, basically church planning, why to do it and how to do it. And I listened to those until I about wore them out, uh, hmm. benefited from them. And of course, you know, nothing's, nothing's perfect. I might have had a question about this or that or the other, but on the whole, just very, very positive. Um, and a, a good friend of mine uh, then sent me The Reason for God a few years back when that first came out. I think that was probably uh, late 2007, something along those lines, and uh, was you know reading it with some uh, anticipation and just came across a few things that didn't seem quite right. Um, and uh, particularly for me, having also, I'm a fan of, of C.S. Lewis, but have some questions about the way he articulates things, and particularly with regard to the doctrine of hell. And mm. um, I, in the chapter in hell, Dr. Keller was quoting him quite verbatim, um, and that was, you know, rather strange. It's one thing for um, for Lewis to do that. He even says at the beginning of his book, that "This is, you know." Um, this is a fantasy, this is a dream, this isn't, you know, I don't want you to take this literally, and, and you know, now I, I read it in, um, in this book, and, you know, I find it all. There's a couple other issues. The articulation of the doctrine of the Trinity sounded like some stuff that I'd, uh, you know, had some, something in common with stuff that I'd come across when going to a, a liberal secular university. Uh, not all of it, of course. You know, most of it was great. Um, but there's just some importation, I guess, of some stuff that didn't sound quite right. Um, and so I, you know, uh, decided to get into contact with, with Dr. Keller about it. And um, to his great credit, uh, he was willing to engage with a, a nobody like me. And we, we talked about these things. And um, for the moment, I, you know, just kind of uh, didn't think about it again. But uh, more books came. And. I also read those books, and um, you know, I, I saw some other things as well. And so, from time to time, the conversation would come up. And uh, you know, for instance, I eventually um, got together with Dr. Campbell, the other editor of the book, Ian D. Campbell, and uh-huh. Uh-huh. compared notes. And he said, "Yeah, actually, I've you know noticed some problems as well." And both of it, and for he and I and the rest of the contributors, there's a basic level appreciation of Keller and his work, and also. 
uh, by the way, as we you know kept on reading his books and other stuff, is that um, he believes the orthodox truth. There's you know we, we're quite convinced of that. The question is the way he articulates that stuff, the way he articulates these biblical truths, and um, we just have some serious questions about it. And the main thing, though, you know, that could be said about a lot of people. Why then write, why then edit a book about it? Well, because Keller's uh, the most well-known Presbyterian minister on the face of the planet. Uh, yeah, I was going to ask you, just uh, just if I can interrupt real quick, I was as you were talking, I was thinking, well, there's a lot of people out there, certainly pastors, theologians, that, I mean, probably have issues. I, you know, I don't know any single person that has their theology 100% correct. Um, yeah, so why don't I write, you know, the, why so don't why, edit why, a book? Why uh, Keller? Uh, yeah, engaging with, a book with, uh, with, with Bill Hill, right? Right, exactly. Why, why not? Yeah, why not write a book about that? Why, why Tim Keller? Yeah, sure. I mean, the answer is just simple. Um, his his influence is absolutely enormous, and if you don't believe that, come to my city, uh, Newcastle, Gateshead, England, and and you know ask uh, any Christian. And it doesn't matter if they're Church of England or if they're Charismatic, Pentecostal, whatever. They know Tim Keller. Uh, I remember when I came here, I wanted to make liaison with some of the existing churches, and I did that. And and when I mentioned the PCA, oh yeah, isn't that Tim Keller's denomination? You know, and uh, so they have heard of Tim Keller, and he has this amazing platform. Then, um, and I guess that's the element. I guess that's the thing. Um, we want his influence to be unmitigated positive. You know, that years from now when we look back. That the enormous platform given was, uh, you know, used without any, you know, lack of clarity or um, problematic issues. It was used for good for the, you know, the, the promotion of the Reformed faith. And so I, you know, that's his importance demands that we take a look at it because what he says, in essence, is received as de facto orthodoxy. And I mean, I'm sure that we would all say, well, great, wouldn't I love that? Well, it's, it's, um, I'm sure it's nerve-wracking, you know, for him. It's a huge, crushing responsibility that basically anything that you say is going to be taken um, as, as orthodox fact. And so the church then also has a responsibility of, of helping him, you know, double-check through some, through some of the stuff to make sure that uh, it's representative of biblical truth. What's the goal of the book, Dr. Schweitzer? Well, just that. It, it's it's to have that conversation to say, I think we, we put it somewhere in the introduction, that with this enormous um, influence, and, you know, uh, for good reason, um, with this enormous influence then, we just um, want to make sure that there's some critical engagement uh, to say, are these, not just the, the system of doctrine which he believes and in general terms wants to promote, but the specific articulations, the specific teachings of these things, um, are these things the right way that we, we want to go or no? And, and we're saying, here's some things imitate Keller on the whole, but here's some things that you may not want to imitate him on. Mm-hmm. Just out of curiosity, do you know if Dr. Keller has read the book? He has, yes. And has he responded to you, uh, you as the editor or co-editor, or maybe perhaps some of the authors of the various articles in the book? He hasn't. Interesting. Okay. Uh, just interesting because certainly it's about him, his doctrines, theology, and how he's expounding those and how he's expressing them. It's interesting that 
he's read it, but it may, I'm, the man's probably very busy. Who knows the reasons? And I'm not going to guess, but it just is curious to me that no formal response anyway. Now, as I as you open this book up, you notice right away in the table of contents that the authors of the various articles, of which there's seven, um, are not exactly uh, average guys, as we would classify people in the church. Uh, you have men like D.J. Hart. Uh, you have men like uh, Ian Campbell. You have men, I mean, I'm not going to list every one of them. Uh, uh, Richard Holst has written an article. Um, some of these are household names, as it were, in the Reformed camp. But you yourself authored two of the articles. And I think just for sake of time and simplicity in ease of the conversation, why don't we start with the two that you wrote um, and then maybe move into some of these other areas. And, and I, I want to start backwards. I'd like to start with the one that everybody seems to uh, know, if they know anything about Dr. Keller, seem to know automatically uh, this issue. And that's the one in chapter six of the book, um, on theistic evolution, does Keller bridge the gap between creation and evolution? Does he? Well, uh, no, but um, not just because he's particularly failed, but just because of the the whole uh, enterprise is one that is is fundamentally impossible. You just you can't do that. Um, I, I understand the reasons for why you'd want to. I understand that Keller's not the only one to ever want to give that a shot. Um, but you just you get, can't do that. They're mutually exclusive ways of understanding not just origins, not just hermeneutics of a particular part of the Bible, but just wholly mutually exclusive, um, you know, ways of of um, philosophies or however you want to want to put it. Um, now, I, I want to say at the outset that Keller himself, well, he draws a s distinction between what he personally believes and what he's defending. And my yeah. chapter has to do with what more with what he's defending with rather than what Keller himself believes. Because, you know, most of your, some of your listeners may have uh, heard that interview he did with Eric Metaxas, New Canaan mm -hmm. Society, in which... Um, uh, that's where, by the way, the title of the chapter comes from, um, uh, you know, not quite theistic evolution, because Eric Metaxas, after Keller explains what he's talking about, and he says, so what's your position? Uh, is it theistic evolution? And Keller responds, no, not quite. Um, and he goes on to explain, moreover, that he believes in an old earth progressive creationism. Okay, so as far as Keller himself is concerned, he's not a theistic evolutionist. What he is seeking to defend, though, and to say is orthodox, and we ought to make room in the evangelical church to accept, are those who are, are theistic evolutionists. Those who uh, yeah, it's interesting, uh, on page 194 of the book, and, and for those who are listening and did not catch the, the beginning, the book is entitled Engaging with Keller. So if you're in front of your computer, you can Google it, whatever. I will have a link to it on the website when this is produced, uh, hopefully not in a month, <laughs> like the last few have been. Um, but anyway, there, there's, a, there's a statement taken from the book on page 194, and I want to read this for the sake of the listeners, because as we're dealing with this issue, he starts out, the chapter starts out by saying that Tim Keller's goal for his apologetic work is to render the Christian faith relevant to contemporary people. I've heard that same thing said 100,000 times in my life. But the Christian faith is relevant 
but this is his goal, apparently, to make it relevant in, in the area of this issue between creation, evolution, and bridging these gaps. And he says there are a variety of ways, this is a quote, there are a variety of ways in which God could have brought about the creation of life forms in human life using evolutionary processes. And that the picture of incompatibility between orthodox faith and evolutionary biology is greatly overdrawn. Now, I read that as an ignorant seminary student, and I think, oh, me. <laughs> um, and you respond by saying, in other words, there's no real opposition between Christian faith and evolution. You can believe them both, since evolution is simply the means by which God created problem solved. Is it? it is, are, we, we've been wrong. It's been, we've yeah. been confused for so long. And now we have the answer. Yeah. See, no, um, I, I don't think so. Um, and very few, I would say, other people think so as well. Um, the evolutionist, he goes on to say, you know what, evolutionists themselves don't think that there's any any way uh, you either believe their position or you're, um, you're a, a straight creationist, as, as I would be. And people on our side would say, you certainly can't believe any part of evolution. But the way he frames a problem is this. Um, the people, just to back up just a little bit, the way he really frames a problem is it causes a difficulty for both believers and unbelievers alike. If you're an unbeliever and you're a seeker, you come to Christianity and say, well, I can't believe this because that means I'm going to have to get rid of science. I'm going to have to dismiss what science tells me. Huh. And on the other hand, then believers say, this is a big problem because I respect science and I want to, you know, I respect the, the devices that we've been given, all the technology and the medical technology, and, and that, those are good things. Why should I have to get rid of that? And, and he's saying, well, don't worry, it's not mutually exclusive. Well, first of all, you have to, if you're going to become a Christian, you've already got to be able to uh, be willing to um, say farewell to a lot of things. You've got to mm -hmm. oppose what the world tells you in all kinds of things. And one of the things I try to say is that this is not a special situation. Uh, Christianity has always been in opposition to what the world says. And yes, of course, that um, evolution claims to uh, be about truth. It claims to be about the way the world really is. But exactly which ideology or false religion or anything doesn't claim to do that. They all do. They all claim that they have a purchase on the truth. And um, the fact that evolution is doing that is, is no different. Um, the, so the issue, as, as I sort of point out at one point, is, you know, uh, you could pose the problem with the early church in dealing with the issue of the Roman civil religion, because that's what so much of the persecution, the state-sponsored persecution was about, their unwillingness to simply bow the knee to Caesar. Um, you can, they were remarkably pluralistic. You could believe absolutely any crazy thing you wanted privately or in 99% in of your, your life. But every once in a while, there was going to be some sort of civil situation that required you to give a little incense or whatever it was um, in order that uh, to Caesar. And to them, it was under the guise of this is just your civic duty. This is just your, this is political. This is not religious. Believe whatever you want. But the people could not do that. The Christians, the faithful Christians said, no, I'm not going to do that. The, the re civil religion claims to, uh, you know, to be something that um, 
you're saying something true. You know, it's speaking of the, the truth of, of reality, and I'm not going to do that. This is mutually exclusive with the Christian faith. And so I can have the Christian faith, and I cannot have Roman civil religion, whatever the consequences. And the consequences right. were often very dire. And so if we, you know, what do we have then? Where did evolution come from? From biblical Christianity? No. Uh, who preaches it today? Biblical Christians? You know, no, of course not. It's 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 uh, was conceived and and grown and and has its prosperity by those who would very much oppose biblical Christianity. So I'm not saying that there aren't some Christians who might believe be theistic evolutionists, but what I'm saying is that the core of this issue is very much not about Christianity. It's a way of making atheism intellectually acceptable, and so. Why, you know, um, in the end, we have to say, um, is it so surprising then that Christianity is going to be in conflict with evolution? Yeah, uh, no question. You, you, you touch on this one problematic area in the book under your third point in response to the quote I read, where you say Keller suggested there's a via media wherein we can affirm both the reality of evolution and also the biblical teaching of God's creation, which <laughs> right away I read that and I'm thinking just about what everything you just said, well, how's that possible? And of course, but what sort of evolution is the question you then propose? What sort of evolution does Keller think is consistent with Christian faith? Uh, you know, Because we know from the biblical record that God created Adam out of the dust of the ground, that it was a supernatural act of God, that he personally did it using no other means that he formed him from the dust of the ground. That's, I don't think, in dispute, and I don't know Keller well enough to know whether he disputes that or not. But then the question you raise here is, well, then what about Adam and other, other human origin? Yeah. If Adam's the first man, then what do, we, what do we do with this evolutionary possibility? Yeah, so the issue, he doesn't define, um, that is a little bit part of the problem. He's a bit vague. He just says, so, you know, what, if we want to have a little, if some people want to have evolution involved, if they think there's evolution involved in in Adam, um, then, you know, what's the big deal? Why can't we say that that's all right? Well, um, well, let's, let's, so what exactly is meant? You, there's only a couple of possibilities. One is a kind of evolution that doesn't really involve uh, human beings at all. And I, I just, um, charitably in that way sort of um, go over that possibility that maybe that's being meant. Maybe there's evolution of animals, but uh, really Adam was just a, a special creation and so forth. And and I would, you know, the only thing about that one, that kind of evolution is it wouldn't begin to address the objections mm. of the secular scientist. That's not going right. to help us close that gap and make the faith more amenable to the culture. That won't work. So on the other hand, then it more than likely he's he's implying he's talking about that it really was in the direct lineage of Adam that you there's evolution. Well, what are the implications of that? The implications mm. are lots. Uh, implications involving the the um, imperfect pre-hominid uh, you know animals uh, of which the process of death and um, competitive advantages and so forth uh, yield a better one. In fact, in his paper, he speaks of the possibility that maybe spirituality was a competitive advantage. And therefore, well, we know that Adam, of course, certainly believed in God, so he had that advantage, you know, and 
um, in the end, of course, you're you're just dealing with the, the same old thing. Then um, is that compatible with what the the Bible talks about when it um, when it speaks of the special creation of Adam? I, I don't think it is, and I don't think uh, it upholds what we have with regard to um, the Pauline theology of Adam as our federal head. Mm. Now you talk about the kind of science that Keller employs which is an interesting section frankly because I hear the word science and I think anybody who hears the word science is just going to make an automatic determination based on normal reasoning science science is science observable elements and facts that you can glean from what the world around you you observe you see they're re- reproducible what yeah. kind of science is Keller using sure sure let me just if you don't mind I'll just read and sort of comment a little bit just to say sure. Um, because I, there really are two different senses of what we're talking about science. We're talking about the data that science is a collection and also the sort of pronouncements that scientists make. And the two things are not the same. Now, he, right. I think he confuses those two things. He says, many believers in Western culture see the medical and technological advances achieved through science and are grateful for them. They have a very positive view of science. How then can they reconcile what science seems to tell them about evolution with their traditional theological beliefs? Well, if it's if it's, there really are medical and th- technological advances, and there's many of them, well, those are grounded in objective reality. That is real science, and I call that science A. On the other hand, what science seems to tell them about evolution, we'll call that science B, because those aren't the same. All right? Um, just because somebody in a lab coat says, you know, something is true, that we all uh, evolved from single-celled organisms, doesn't mean that it actually is. Uh, We don't have to accept what they say uh, on that basis. So keeping that distinction in mind, Keller could have said that our gratitude for technological achievement does not entail a servile deference to whatever the scientific authorities tell us, especially when a theory extends beyond any contemporary ability to test it. And I give the example of something that was invented right here in Gateshead, the light bulb. Um, That was a wonderful technological advance, and it was grounded squarely in the realities of nature. That is science A. And we can all be grateful for it. But you know what kind of uh, theory of light prevailed at that time? Something that wasn't true. The official science, uh, scientific consensus, and again, that would be science B, was teaching a theory of light that required a notional medium called the luminiferous ether, um, which if you've read Thomas Kuhn, you know about it because this was later disproved with the advent of better experimental techniques and more accurate theories. All right, so those two things are just not the same. And what I say is that Keller could have dealt with a problem by reasoning along these lines. It's true that all the, you know, the great majority of scientists say that, the, that all life evolved from non-life. However, just like the luminiferous ether of Victorian science, this is a theory that lies beyond the ability of contemporary science to determine conclusively. That's right. Despite many efforts, no one has yet been able to demonstrate the creation of life from non-life in laboratory experiments. And again, this is something which I, it'd be one thing, you know, if every lab in the in the country were able to easily recreate life from non-life, which really the theory would, would demand in some way or another. But of course it can't. And that most basic thing, having never even been close to have been proven, you know, um, you wonder why it's being passed off as science A. It's not as science B. Um, anyways, and I say because the origin of life is a singular event that lies in the, the distant past um, and something that's it's just unlikely that science could ever be in a position to make an authoritative determination on it one way or another. 
And so we don't have to be overly concerned if science currently teach an account of origin that conflicts mm-hmm. with scripture. So all that to say, I think the problem is just a little overblown. Well, I, I got to tell you, as, as, as I listen to you talk about this subject, and I've had other interviews where um, Dr. Keller has been discussed and, and, and we've worked through some of these matters, um, it's, it sounds a lot to me like this requires a whole lot more faith than just accepting how God has established the origin of man in the Genesis record. I, 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 I'm astounded that we have to jump through all these hoops, frankly, to try to, to try to create some kind of contemporary relevance to help Christians weed through their doubts. I, yeah, well, I mean, I that just is... don't quite get it. Yeah, I understand what you're saying, um, but it is really, that's the definition of problem. And if you, theoretically, if you set for yourself as the problem to solve, the problem that Christianity isn't intellectually credible in cosmopolitan world cities like New York City, and and people laugh at bumpkin Christians like you and I, and what can we do about that? If that's the, the problem that you set yourself to address, then you can see where some of this, you know, begins to make sense. And I guess that's what we're saying is that we're the, the checks and balances for the on behalf of the church to say, <laughs> you're, you're, um, you know, Dr. Keller, we respect what you're trying to do here, but you've you've overextended a little bit. Um, we don't think that this is the bake the the place where the problem lies. The problem doesn't lie in that um, the world finds Christianity uh, intellectually untenable. We know that from First Corinthians. The, mm-hmm. the cross is foolishness. The gospel is foolishness. Uh, it is foolishness to the Greeks. It always has been. It always will be. That can't be the problem that we're dealing with. Now, if you want to deal with a problem in terms of, of fact, you know, of adjudicating what is true, that's a whole. Uh, that's a totally different thing. But right. adjudicating yeah. what is uh, what is going to be amenable, adjudicating what is going to not cause a big difficulty for for seekers who are thinking about Christianity but don't want to uh, to give up on the pronouncements of secular science, that's that's just a problem that can't be solved. And I guess I also give uh, an example of what happens and just to show that it's not just, uh, you know, uh, guys like me who would say maybe this isn't the best way to go, but I quote um, University of Chicago professor Jerry Coyne, uh, with respect to biologists, because you know this thing, this main paper that I'm I'm critiquing here uh, was Keller's white paper on biologists, and here's what just, he says. Just for the just for the listeners' background, biologists is if you've heard anything about Tim Keller, then you've heard the term, the phrase biologists. There's a whole website devoted to it, or these papers. There's all kinds of papers and information, articles written. Um, in and around these views that we're discussing right now. So I just wanted to get that. I'm sorry. Didn't mean to interrupt you. Yeah, yeah. So anyways, he says this. Uh, this is Jerry Coyne saying, Biologists had the goal of turning evangelical Christians towards accepting evolution. They proposed to do this by showing literalist Christians that the Bible and Darwin were completely compatible. It didn't work, of course. Efforts stalled, <laughs> and biologists began engaging in all sorts of crazy apologetics, many of them trying to show how Adam and Eve, a couple that genetics tells us could not have spawned all humanity, 
could still somehow be human ancestors, ergo that Jesus didn't have to die for a metaphor. In the end, Biologos went for the coward solution, refusing to take a firm stand on whether Adam and Eve really existed. This is, of course, this, of course, was profoundly contradictory to their pro-science approach. And this is after they've gone all to all this uh, effort, you know, if this is what we get for our efforts, you know, what's what's the point? Why bother? No, sounds like that's a little bit of a mock. Uh, you mean uh, the guy who wrote that? Right. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, he's writing. Uh, I wouldn't um, I wouldn't condone his, his mocking tone. Um, but what I'm saying is he doesn't show respect. He doesn't say, well, you know, I don't like Christians generally. I think they're 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 foolish and dumb. Um, but I do have a certain level of grudging respect for biologists because at least they're trying to appear scientific. Uh, right. That doesn't seem to be forthcoming from that. No, no. It, it seems it's quite the opposite. That in right. fact, he's, you're even lower in the estimation because you're seen as a compromiser. Well, you know, as I as I continue to think about this subject, and 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 I confess immediately. Uh, it's not a subject I give a lot of attention to, um, because frankly, I find a lot of it just to be completely well. Anyway, but here's the thing. Again, a simpleton. If we take our doctrine of God seriously, right? God is an omniscient being. He knows all. He's infinitely wise. Uh, he has ordained all events. These are all things that I would believe. I, I'd like to believe that Dr. Keller would affirm wholeheartedly if he was sitting in front of you or I. Now. If that's all true, then the question of did God not know that we would have this contemporary, relevant type problem um, when he moved by the Holy Spirit for Moses to pen the events of creation? Did he not know that humanity would wrestle through these matters long before humanity ever got to the place where they could actually do so? It seems rather simple to me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would, I would just have to agree with you. In fact, um, I, I must, you know, uh, I, I didn't go in as great of depth as I maybe could have on the exegesis. I go fairly briefly through it, and um, it seems to me that, in fact, all sorts of potential errors or mis- misconstruals uh, were ruled out in the specific way in the. Uh, the multiplicity of words used to describe exactly how it is that God brought about Adam from the dust of the earth, you know, and it's very clear that it's it's precluding any possibility of any prior living uh, being at all. It's it's just clear, um, and I, w- I would agree with you that um, I'm not sure how you can get that to say something else. <laughs> what, but what I do know is that God, throughout his, his scripture, is always anticipating the reality that the world is not going to agree with it. Because the bigger issue is not that the world is sincerely looking for an intellectually credible reason right. to believe in God. It's, it's the opposite. That, it's quite the opposite. Because it, deep down they hate God. And yep. they are construing all sorts of, well, as some other author has said, you know, fig leaves, intellectual fig leaves these plausibility structures uh, to uh, just as an excuse to retain their unbelief. Well, you say that very well at the end of this chapter, which, for the listener's sake, just understand that we have just scratched the surface of these issues, and we've talked around them and through some of them, but there's a lot more in the chapter that 
time does not allow us to deal with um, well. Um, but you say this at the end, which I think is a very gr- good reminder. Hebrews 11.3 reminds us that by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Yeah, it's, that it's, sounds like Genesis chapter one to me. Yeah, supernatural special. Go ahead. Supernatural special creation is thus an element of faith, and although evidence of God's existence and power are clearly seen throughout creation, Romans one, natural man is never going to receive the truth of it. On the other hand, evolution was conceived by those outside the biblical faith, is currently taught by those outside the biblical faith, and is widely embraced by those outside this faith. If it were hypothetically possible to build a mediating bridge between these radically different perspectives, I am not sure we would want to. (laughs) (laughs) I can't can't help but laugh when I read that because the implications are too terrible to contemplate. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, So I guess I would also just go back to that notion of... um, is, are we talking about objective reality, uh, special revel- or natural revelation, or are we speaking of what some very, uh, when I say interested, I mean that they have vested interest, uh, interested, vested interest men with an agenda, uh, and this this data has gone through a torturous process by which it arrives at us prepackaged as a theory of evolution. Um, should we be bending over backwards uh, to to find a way to to make that at home within the Christian faith? And yeah, I, with you, no, I don't think we should. No, well, let God be right and every man a liar. That's what I like you thinking about. Anyway, chapter two. I mean, we're spent a lot of time in that chapter because I think that's the that's the issue that I think most people who are familiar with Tim Keller are, are aware that he's aligned with now. But there's a lot more. Um, I was actually, my eyes were open to some things that I wasn't even, I, they weren't even on the radar screen. Really? Which, which oh, ones did that, uh, would you say Chapter were two is, 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 is the next chapter, is the other chapter that you had um, offered in this uh, book that you edited, Brimstone Free Hell. A new way of saying the same old thing about judgment in hell. What's what's going on here? Yeah, as I mentioned, that was my point of entry into um, the issue and what ini- uh, would initially have drawn me to have a conversation on email with with Dr. Keller on this. Uh, again, the larger issue is the same, and that's something that the introduction talks about. It's uh, having to do with the limits of, of apologetics, because Keller writes not as a systematic theologian, he writes as an apologist, and he's trying to make the faith um, attractive to, uh, to the culture. And of all the things, you know, of all the doctrines out there, surely the doctrine of hell is one of the most problematic from that perspective, because, I mean, who, what unbeliever likes the, the doctrine of hell? Of course, it's, um, and as I say also, for that reason then, it's one of the things that are most likely to be under threat. Um, and so the reality is, and we're talking about color, but we ought to say that there's um, a lot worse than, than that. There are those who don't talk about hell at all, and there are those who go on like Rob Bell to take a universalist position. Yeah, so right. we can be thankful that, that Keller doesn't go that road. He definitely upholds the reality of hell that will be populated. The question is in the way that he articulates it. And I, I have a little section to talk about. There's a difference between, you know, the, the 
a, a doctrine, you know, when we call something a doctrine, like the doctrine of hell, it's like a, a, this glass. And um, it's not eligible just for anything to be poured into it. It contains a number of necessary elements that are part of the biblical truth. So you can't just have a doctrine of hell. It's got to be the right articulation of the biblical doctrine of hell. Now, as I say, if you, you know, look carefully at all of Keller's material, you will find that he does, in some places, articulate the, what we would call the traditional, plain old, normal doctrine of hell that, that we all would understand that the Bible teaches. Uh, so my issue is, though, that he often, he in fact self-consciously draws a distinction between um, the way he talks to modernists, and these would be the typically older, maybe more rural, less educated sort of people, and the postmodernist, uh, which would be um, more urban, typically younger, all the rest of those things. And because his books are directed to that latter audience, what everyone knows his teaching on hell to be is exclusively this doctrine for the postmoderns. And his doctrine for the postmoderns is essentially that of C.S. Lewis. Mm-hmm. And what's that? Okay, good question. Well, um, the way I, I sort of parse it up is uh, the three elements. Who sins, who decides that people go to hell? Who decides that they stay there? And who is meeting out the punishment in hell? And in those questions, C.S. Lewis would all say it's us. Uh, we send ourselves we are the ones who decide to go to hell if you've read the great divorce you you hear you know you see how this is articulated they don't like the idea of heaven um, they much and mainly and most importantly they prefer to keep on their precious sin or idolatry which they just refuse to let go of mm. and that's what's keeping them in hell if they were ever once just to let go of this this idolatry this sin or whatever then they would they would be they would go to heaven um, essentially um, but they're unwilling. Every once in a while, in in, in Lewis's uh, articulation of it, um, people actually do leave hell and go to heaven. Now, that is the, the one element which Keller thankfully does not pick up on and never quotes from those sections. But, so what we have, though, it, what he does say is that people in hell just always want to stay there. Um, and the reason why in, um, let me just find a, a quote for you. Um, Let's see. Modern people in inevitably think that hell works like this. God gives us time, but if we haven't made the right choices by the end of our lives, he casts our souls into hell for all eternity. As the poor soul falls through space, they cry out for mercy, but God says, too late. You had your chance. Now you will suffer. This caricature misunderstands the very nature of evil. The biblical picture is that sin separates us from the presence of God, which is the source of all good and indeed of all love, wisdom, mm, or good mm. things of any sort. Since we were originally created for God's immediate presence, only before his face will we thrive, flourish, and achieve our highest potential. If we were to lose his presence totally, that would be hell, the loss of our capability for giving or receiving love or joy. So, uh, what he's saying is that the idea of God simply casting people who don't want to go to hell uh, and doing that, that's a character. That's not uh, the right way of thinking of it. And rather, he goes on and he has a, a sermon called, Isn't the God of Christianity an Angry Judge? And of course, he's clearly trying to clear God of the skeptics' charge on that. And he goes on to say this, 
uh, summary, hell is just a freely chosen identity based on something else besides God going on forever. And that's the reason why the idea that you have in your mind and that people give you in your mind that God is a God who sort of throws people into hell. You know, he sort of throws them into the pit and they're climbing up the side saying, please, no, let me out. And God is saying, no, it's too late. It's hell for you. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. He says, in the long run, the, question, the answer to those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question, what are you asking God to do? To wipe out past sins and at all costs give them a fresh start? He did on Calvary. To forgive them? But they don't ask for forgiveness. To leave them alone? That's what hell is. There are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. And all that, in hell, all that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, it wouldn't be hell. So, in essence, he's saying, God doesn't send people to hell. You send yourself to hell. Now, that's Lewis says that. Well, I, I, was, I should have made very clear where the quotes begin and end. They're, they're quite elegantly um, uh, integrated into his material. But the, the quote from, uh, from Keller uh, is to say, all that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, it wouldn't be hell. Interesting. What, in a nutshell, how would you, if it's possible to do it in a few sentences, how would you um, summarize Dr. Keller's doctrine of hell? Well, again, personally, I, I, I assume he believes the orthodox truth. What he's articulating, though, is it's just self-choice. You send yourself to hell. The nature, uh, and you remain there because you never want to leave it, because you're involved in a web of self-deception and idolatry and addiction. And he likens it to someone on Skid Row. And you say, you know, why don't you get out of here? This is a terrible place. And the person in Skid Row, you know, likes his addiction and wants to keep it. And that's the issue. But at, and, and so, and the, the nature of the, the pain, the torment in hell has to do with um, the, what we're doing in essence to ourselves. And at no point is there a reference to God's activity. Um, there's not a reference to God actively, judiciously, judici uh, judicially sending someone to hell. Um, in fact, he says that's a caricature. Um, it's not a reference to him keeping the people there. Um, and there's definitely not a reference to um, God pouring out his wrath upon the damned in hell. And I, I think that that's the real issue there, because apologies... Well, it sounds to me like then he would struggle with the doctrine of sin at some level. He does. Um, again, at least in his articulation. Yeah, that's right. By the and way, I, I just I wanted to say I, I needed. I just wanted to say this one other thing about it is that C.S. Sure. Lewis, and I don't. I don't know if uh, Keller's ever even read George MacDonald. I doubt that he got it. Uh, well, no. In fact, I do know he's read George MacDonald in other places, but I don't think that he got it, this from from him. He got it from C.S. Lewis or maybe some other source, I don't know. Um, but you see, George MacDonald came up with this doctrine of hell precisely because he hated the idea of the wrath of God, and particularly he thought that the idea of the penal substitutionary atonement was reprehensible. He called it a monstrous doctrine, and his whole system of theology was in opposition to it. But particularly this doctrine of hell was sort of, you know, the, the, the center point for that. Now, of hmm. course... Um, Tim Keller would uphold the penal substitutionary atonement, but the problem is when you start using as an apologetic device a doctrine of hell that has at its very core um, 
in an opposition to the penal substitutionary atonement is only going to be a matter of time before it does exactly what it was designed to do, and that's the problem. I remember years ago talking with a friend that I worked with and made the following comment to him. I said, you know, the fact of the matter is God is holy, God is just, God demands perfection from his creatures. We cannot give that. We are not capable. We are sinners. We are fallen people. But the fact of the matter remains. Sin must be paid for. Now, either Christ is going to pay for your sin or you're going to pay for your sin, but somebody's going to pay for it. Now, you choose which one would you rather have. Now, I mean, I was obviously simplifying the matter for this poor unsaved individual, recognizing the reality that in hell, sin is paid for by the person who is the sinner. Mm-hmm. Um, thus, God being represented as the just judge who banishes, Matthew 7, those from his presence who do not do what he commands. Now, how does that differ? Maybe I'm the one that's wrong. I mean, I read, I hear what you're saying about what Tim Keller says about the doctrine of hell, and I think to myself, man, I've been wrong my whole life. I, that's how I view that the primary function, as it were, of hell is that sin is being paid for. Yeah. But it takes an eternity to do it because sin is an infinite offense against an infinite holy God. Yeah, I mean, and that's definitely... Aside from anything else it may be doing, it's certainly doing that. Yeah. Now, am I missing something? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, so again, um, when you tinker with uh, any doctrine to sort of blunt some of the more offensive elements of it, um, it inevitably has implications for lots of other things. And again, I would reiterate that that um, Tim Keller is approaching this as an apologist um, rather than as a systematic theologian. So I do not claim that he's thought through every one of these implications and he's okay with them. Uh, he would probably disagree uh, with some of these these implications, and we'd have to respectfully, you know, uh, disagree on, on the on that. But I would say yes, it has dire implications for other things. Um, you mentioned sin. Uh, what is sin? Um, is it a breaking of God's law? And what is the human problem? Is the human problem that we have caused lots of problems for ourselves in this life? And in fact, if we if we don't change something, that will cause uh, continue to cause problems on and on throughout eternity. Because that's the way Lewis describes hell. It's basically things have already started in this life. Your own self-centeredness. Uh, you're so wrapped up in your sin and idolatry and your self-centeredness that you are uh, you're hurting yourself and others around you, and that will just snowball. That will just spiral downwards eternally. And that's what hell is, in essence. You know, is that our human problem? Um, and, and if that is our human problem, then every once in a while you, you sometimes hear the gospel being articulated to address that sort of problem, whereby rather than dealing objectively with uh, these sins, each every one of which an offense against a holy God, who most certainly will punish sinners who have committed them in eternity in hell, will, he's going to pour out his wrath against it, that the cross dealt with that issue, and instead his wrath was poured out on the Lord Jesus Christ, and those who put their faith in him will be saved. Or is it an issue whereby because it's you have caused yourself all these problems, and you're so self-centered, and you're so stuck on your sin and idolatry, that the only thing that's going to pull you out of that, the only thing that's going to shake you up enough is to look at the cross and to see what uh, this 
amazing self-sacrifice of Christ, and that will sort of uh, disrupt this downward spiral and get you out of it. Um, that's incidentally very often the way that C.S. Lewis um, articulated the gospel. Mm. Well, you mentioned him coming at this angle from an apologetic perspective. You know, and I, as I sit in my classes here at Greenville Seminary um, and I take an apologetics, it, it, time and again I've heard the statement made that our systematic theology informs our apologetic method. That they're not separate entities of themselves. You, you don't do systematics over here and then do apologetics over here as though there's no connection whatsoever. And, and, and that, which troubles me a little bit when I think about what Keller's goal is to be an apologist, apparently, um, and not engage in the, the aspect of systematic theology informing that apologetics. Yeah, well, here again, I mean, praise God um, that is we're dealing with what we're talking about a, a whole church, and God has given different gifts um, to different men. And I guess if you're asking what the book is about, again, it's it's part of that. It is um, if there are some that are a little bit more minded in systematic theology, maybe that's been their training, as was my case, and and uh, Dr. Campbell and Dr. Bidwell and a few others. Um, then we can we can bring that to bear and help the church think through these things because that's what it is thinking through um, this theology. Um, so yeah, I I, I very much um, thankful for the fact that um, we're not out just doing it alone, but we have others to help us as it were. Mm. Well, we're running short on time, so I think we have enough time to deal with one more article in here. And since I'm the host, I get to pick it. Okay. <laughs> One of the few privileges of being the host. <laughs> um, one that just jumped off the page at me, um, I guess because of my current status as a seminary student, was the one written by Richard Holst mm -hmm. on Tim, Kelly, mm -hmm. Tim Keller's hermeneutic. Yeah, yeah. What is his hermeneutic? I mean, we've just talked about two critical areas, creation, the origin of man, and the doctrine of hell, pretty big subjects in the biblical world. Um I'm almost afraid to ask that question. <laughs> well, you know, um, on some level, you can say that Keller's just um, guilty of the preacher's sin of trying to make a, a point and going beyond what the text would allow him to do. Um, it's the difference with him, of course, he's very influential, and also that a lot of the particular distinctive things that he's known for um, the things that would people would immediately associate with his name and his contributions would be based on what I would consider to be fairly inadequate exegetical support. Um, so Holst very helpfully goes through what the Reformed hermeneutic has to do, and you know it's uh, we we would all know it. You know you're going to let the clearer places in Scripture inform the less clear. Uh, you're going to go with what your main evidence for something is going to be based on what the the main point of a passage is rather than some sort of peripheral aspect of the, the passage and you know that you're going to there's going to be good and necessary consequences and that's of course the uh, the title of that chapter good and necessary consequences either explicitly written down or by good and necessary consequence comes from it so um, are these and that deals with logic you know, so are these actually really logical implications of what the text says, or are we dealing with logical fallacies? 
And right. so, so Holst, after laying down the, the rule, um, the Westminster hermeneutic, then goes through some instances which would seem to say um, that Keller hasn't always followed these rules. Yeah, he starts out with his use of parables, which, and I think um, uh, Holst is right in his opening section of that um, treatment where he says, in general terms, the right exegesis of parables is a challenging business. Now, I, I'm not a full-time pastor by any means. I occasionally preach, exhort, um, and um, but parables can be, they can be very messy business, um, trying to get to the heart of what they're teaching and not letting them say more than they're actually intended to say. And it, So he picks on this aspect in, in for good reason, because it seems that Dr. Keller takes the parables beyond their limits. Yeah, and of course, uh, we do find that some of his more distinctive stuff is related to um, a parable. Of course, the parable of the prodigal son would certainly be um, one of those things. But so, as you say, yeah, um, it's a challenging thing. And um, he, but let's, uh, I'm just looking at an example here with regard to um, the prodigal God. And this mm-hmm. is what he says. I'm turning to this familiar story, this is Keller, found in the 15th chapter of the Gospel of St. Luke, in order to get to the heart of the Christian faith. I will demonstrate how the story helps us to understand the Bible as a whole. Now, the only problem with that is that, and again, this is, The Prodigal God is much less an apologetic book. It's explicitly uh, for Christians as well as as non-Christians to help us um, recover the heart of the Christian gospel. But the problem is that he is, in essence, using a parable which has all these difficulties hermeneutically and using that as a hermeneutic lens to understand the rest of Scripture. Now, that is absolutely mm. turning things on their head. Mm-hmm. And if it is the case, and um, Holst doesn't go on really much to talk about what, what happens in the end, um, but if in the course of his exposition, Keller somehow manages to keep from error after turning the core tenet of interpretive practice completely on its head, he has still set a monumentally bad example. And I guess that's the issue, too. Because if you can still extricate yourself and things turn out okay for the time, the problem is, what is the example that you're now setting for the church? And again, because people really, really do follow Keller's example. He is hugely influential. And that's why we're talking about these things. Yeah, to take the parables outside of their intended purposes. I mean, this is not a new thing. <laughs> I mean, I sat through this as a child, even, and listened to, and and I, you know, winsome communicators. Which the book talks about how, in fact, this chapter talks about how Keller is a gifted communicator. Yep. And people listen; they gravitate towards that kind of that kind of personality, and. Um, so you listen to these men, and you're and you're like, wow, I've never seen that before in this parable, and it's amazing, and I've learned some new teaching, and perhaps it's right, and perhaps it's not, but if you divorce yourself from a solid hermeneutical approach to the text, that that is that parables are designed to teach one point, one main theme, <laughs> one one anal- it's an analogy of a bigger lesson being taught, then you can get you can make these parables say just about anything you'd like, frankly. And and it would seem right. <laughs> and that is, of course, the interesting thing about the prodigal son. It was you. You wonder where did the the classical liberals ever get their? You know, what was their exegetical warrant? Actually, for the the core tenet of that, which was uh, the universal fatherhood of of God and the brotherhood of man, mm-hmm. they that's they use the prodigal son. 
Um, I could mention a couple of other sort of less than orthodox things that over the years have used as their main warrant the prodigal son. So if it's capable of that sort of magnitude of a misinterpretation, it really ought to be handled with with a great amount of care. And if we're going to find out the central core articulation of the gospel, we probably ought to look elsewhere. That's why there's a host of books written by a host of people on properly understanding and interpreting the parables, because they're they, they can be difficult, no mm-hmm. question. Uh, Holstein goes into this use of secondary aspects. What is he talking about? Well, it's something that was challenging to me, actually. I was reminded of um, the, you know, the Westminster Standards uh, exhortation to preachers that we should stick to what is mainly intended uh, in a particular text, meaning you shouldn't just go to a certain text and the main thing is about, I don't know, um, uh, you know, the atonement and decide instead that what's interesting to you is some other little element that you, that's really just there as a detail, um, but you should stick with, the, and especially if you're establishing doctrine or, you know, making your point in preaching, what is the main point of this? Mm-hmm. And so he says, uh, and I think to some extent we could all be tightened up on this, but anyways, the, the quote is, chiefly insist upon those doctrines which are principally intended in any given text. And he gives the example of Keller's interpretation of the incident with Miriam in Numbers 12. Mm-hmm. I mean, the promise of Genesis, uh, let's see, the Bible strikes numerous blows against racism. Bo- Moses' sister Miriam was punished by God because she rejected Moses' African wife on account of her race, Numbers 12. And, you know, you say, I didn't know that. I had no idea that God, you know, um, well, you know, um, I don't think that that's what the passage was saying. Um, because actually this is God's own interpretation of why he did what he did he said hear now my words if there is a prophet among you I the Lord make myself known to him in a vision I speak to him in a dream not so with my servant Moses he is faithful in all my house I speak with him face to face even plainly not in dark sayings and he sees the form of the Lord why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses so the anger of the Lord was aroused against him and he departed so the reason that is actually given here, uh, yes, it may be true for all we know. We don't know for sure that um, that Moses' wife was of a different race, um, but that isn't the reason that's actually specified in Scripture, is that she was rebelling against a God-ordained authority structure. I, well, you know, I could have read that passage a thousand times, and I don't think I'd have ever come with that conclusion, given yeah. the fact that we have the explanation shortly thereafter um, that... I, well, anyway, I don't pretend to be as smart as Dr. Keller. I'm certainly not. But Yeah, and uh, I, I, was, I was just going to say, look, if I was challenged, it must be that if you went through all of my sermons, maybe you'd find somewhere where I was dealing too much with a secondary aspect and, you know, really just a detail rather than what was principally intended. And so what we're just saying is, however, the these elements seem to be particularly prominent in the various things um, that, that Keller is most well known, and that's, that's the problem. Because these are the things that are going to be seized upon by the church as an example. And before that happens, it might be worthwhile just to know that uh, maybe this isn't the best. These parts, these elements aren't the best things to, to follow as an example. You know, one of the things that we learn here in homiletics, and Dr. Pipa has gone to great lengths to press upon our impressionable minds and inexperienced approaches, which there are, that's all true, um, is that you need to come and wrestle with the main point of the text? Mm. You need to before you can even worry about what he would call a sub a subtelos, 
of the text, maybe a secondary point or whatever the case may be. If you don't understand the main point of what the biblical writer and the Holy Spirit is trying to communicate to God's people here in this passage, then forget the rest of it. You That is the issue. Yeah. You've got to wrestle with that first yeah. before you can worry about these, these secondary things that may come out in application, perhaps, but not necessarily the main thrust of of like this passage you just got done quoting from. And I know we're running out of time. I'll just mention that the third element in Hulse chapter, which is uh, sure. having to do with logical fallacies um, and the example he gives with regard to the uh, the handling of obedience to the law and the prodigal God. Um, and the, the net effect of this at the end of it, uh, this is the summation. Um, this means that you can rebel against God and be alienated from him either by breaking his rules or by keeping all of them diligently. It's a shocking message. Careful obedience to God's law may serve as a strategy for rebelling against God. Now, I, I don't think that, that that statement is actually accurate to the biblical text. And the question is, how did he get there? And Hull's point is that he got there because of a logical fallacy. Um, he began with something, he moved on to something else, and in various ways, um, a chain of logic in the sense of good and necessary consequence wasn't, uh, wasn't upheld. Interesting. Well, all this goes to show you, and those listening to this, and I realize, you know, I, I, all you have to do is peruse Facebook. For those of you who do Facebook, which is just about everybody. Right. Uh, I got news proofs Facebook. <laughs> not uh, me. Okay, Sorry. except for my guest. My guest doesn't do Facebook. But anyway, all you need to do is peruse the social media websites, Twitter, Facebook, um, various blogs, and any anyone. I just witnessed it this morning. That that takes Keller to task in a in a scholarly, academic, fair way. Uh, I'm not talking about outright slander. I'm not talking about being mean-spirited. I'm not talking about being nasty. I'm talking about dealing with the, the, the merits of what is stated and written um, is immediately attacked. This is why this book is so important for us. It's immediately attacked, breaking the Ninth Commandment and all these other things. Well, this is not the goal of the book. That was stated right up front. But all that being said is this. Just because a man is popular... Just because a man is influential doesn't mean that you need to fall in line, hook, fall into it, hook, line, and sinker. The idea here, I think the book's desire, if, if I am understanding it correctly, is that we as Christians think very carefully about men of this status about what they say. Yeah, and by the way, we, we can't hold... Tim Keller responsible for what people who would be defending him oh. might say. But yeah, and I think that that's the issue. The environment into which this book is necessary is, well, frankly, let's be honest, mainly American evangelicalism, which has a tendency to have a problem with the way that it deals with its well-known ministers. And it's not necessarily the fault of those ministers, but um, that every last thing is absolutely held up as beyond question. And that's a big problem. That's not healthy for the church. So, yeah. Um, well, I'm reminded of the Bereans. I, I, I know this has been, this drum has been beat a thousand umpteen times in the past, but I'm, I'm reminded, I, I'm always reminded of the Bereans where they would examine the scriptures to see 
what was being said were true. And what always strikes me about that passage is that who, what people were they questioning, as it were, questioning? Yeah. Yeah. The apostles teaching. The apostles. They weren't, yeah. it wasn't Bill's <laughs> teaching. It was the question. I'm sure you'll find all kinds of problems. <laughs> it wasn't Dr. Schweitzer's teaching. It wasn't Tim Keller's teaching. It was the apostles. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and we, we as a church have to have that level of humility, um, to be, to willing to submit, um, and to have our, our stuff examined for our own good, because who among us would want, people years from now following our errors i certainly wouldn't and if i was would you in- say what would you say if someone were to say oh dr schweitzer you just you're all wet <laughs> you're just upset because tim keller is a popular influential evangelical and you're sitting over there in the united kingdom and you just have this little tiny kingdom and he's got this huge kingdom and you're just jealous as it were because he's popular and you're not. Well, let's let's just say because I can hear people saying. I'm that. sure. I'm sure. But let's just say first of all that no one's motives on this earth are entirely, uh, utterly without reproach. So um, you know who knows? Our hearts are are desperately wicked, and um, so I. That's that's actually why, and I don't know if I'd really even respond to that, just because we're dealing on the level of motives, and the church is not dealing with motives, we're not dealing with Keller's motives or anyone else's motives, we're just dealing with, does this particular teaching line up with what Scripture says or not? Um, so, in essence, people can say what they will, um, it's, it's not necessarily my, my greatest concern, um, I hope that I've been at least mainly motivated by a desire to to uh, be of use to the church in this. But, you know, in, in essence, um, what we're talking about is do these theological arguments, do these exegetical arguments, are they true or are they false? And I would much prefer that if people want to respond to the book, and I hope that they do, that they instead point out to me and to the other contributors way in, in which we've missed something or we haven't accurately related uh, the you know the way that these things are, are really that I'd much prefer that you know before we wrap up I, I, I want to read from the forward um, from a man who um, I personally know uh, obviously dr. Schweitzer knows him personally um, but he in my mind Okay, and this is not hero worship, this is no other thing but just a careful observation of a man I've watched in various circumstances of life, at least from my vantage point, um, as, 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 as modeling what I would consider the, the truest form of biblical humility I've ever, I've ever met. And that's Dr. Ian Hamilton. Mm, amen. I've, look, I've played golf with Dr. Hamilton. And if anything can shake a man's sanctification, <laughs> it's the game, it's golf. Which is why I don't I play, play it. And but but I, and I know what happens on a golf course to people, and I and I remember, um, uh, you know. And by the way, I must say it's I'm not just saying that's why I don't play. I actually literally threw a club into the woods. I don't play anymore. See, it, it, you just made my point. Thank you for making it. I I've played golf with Dr. Hamilton. I have seen him play well, and his spirit and his demeanor and his language and his tone, everything about the man is as though he was sitting in my office just chatting with me. And I've also seen him play where he could hit the ball straight. He couldn't hit the ball if life depended on it. And nothing changed. Mm. The man is just a model of humility and a model of godliness that I have admired for a long time. And I want to read what he says in the beginning of this book. For those who may think, oh, this is you know just another attack on Tim Keller. No, that's not the goal and the point. He says, Dr. Tim Keller has done immense good 
the kingdom of God as a theological teacher, innovative and imaginative pastor, and engaging apologist. His books are widely and enthusiastically read. His model of doing church in the city has been widely copied. So it is first as an admirer of Dr. Keller that I, that's Dr. Hamilton, write the forward to this collection of essays on Dr. Keller's theology and methodology. However, unadulterated admiration is never desirable nor appropriate unless it be directed to our triune God. And then at the end of the forward, he says, we are all of us, learners in the school of Christ. May the Lord use this collection to give his church a more assured understanding of the faith once for all delivered to the saints. The point is really obvious. We cannot just follow people blindly. We can't just accept it because they're influential or because of their status or because of their place that God has given them. We don't, I don't think anybody denies the fact that God in his providence has put Tim Keller in this influential position. I don't think that's, a mis- that's even in question. The issue is, how are we as a church, members in the church, to respond and think critically through, and I don't mean critically like nasty, I mean mm-hmm. critically like thinking carefully through these critical things. I, we've only touched on two, well, three areas. There's five, four other areas that we never even talked about that we need to understand and need to think carefully biblically through before we just throw our allegiance in a, in, a, in a direction that may or may not be wise or even right. And I think this is what this book is trying to help people do. Um, I've read through some of the book. The tone of it is not uh, excessive. It's, it, in fact, sometimes I feel like it could have gone further, but that's my personality. Um, <laughs> but I appreciate the way you're engaging in the scholastic issue, the merits of the conversation, and that's all, um, to help us understand what is otherwise, as we said in the beginning of the interview, and Dr. Schweitzer, correct me if I'm wrong, what is otherwise a difficult thing to really nail down? What is his view on hell? What is his view on creation? What is his view on... It's not... You can't answer those questions in a couple minutes. Yeah, There's and this, so much as there. we're talking about the bigger issue, I should have mentioned this before. Um, I do mention in the introduction. When the church is in terms in times of great health and prosperity, it cares so much about truth that it's willing to have a debate, a respectful debate among brothers, Christian brothers, to make sure that we absolutely are articulating exactly what that truth is. And even today, in enterprises, in places where the truth is absolutely critical, say aviation safety, and all these things are hashed out in great detail and with all their minute nuances and all the rest of it, and publicly, it's, it's all public debate in order that the truth might be uh, not only known but articulated as clearly as possible because we really believe that getting it right is important. And mm. so I hope, I hope that the church still has a place for that. How can um, our listeners get a copy of this book? What- Oh, just, I know you're gonna uh, say you're gonna say Amazon. <laughs> well, of course I'm gonna <laughs> That's say. That's what everybody says. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, you can go to uh, people, for instance, in the UK can go to the publisher's own uh, website. That's Evangelical Press. But um, I, I think if you just googled uh, engaging with Keller, you'd probably find a few online outlets um, all over the place. So, by the way, can I just I- close with uh, the prayer that we have at the end? Absolutely. As we close, let us join together with our dear brother, Tim Keller, 
to pray that the word and spirit would prosper more and more in our lands and that scores of churches preaching the gospel of Christ crucified would be established and that the triune God would be worshipped in spirit and in truth to the everlasting glory of God alone. Amen. And I will have a link, a link for... <clears throat> excuse me, all of a sudden my voice decided to depart. I will. I know everybody's breathing. They're, they're thinking, no, it's great. It finally happened. Okay. <laughs> all jokes aside... I will have a link to the book on the confessingourhope.com website that will probably go to the Amazon because it's just simpler. Um, but as Dr. Schweitzer said, if you just Google it, you'll find it in numerous places across the Internet and outlets for you. I would encourage people to get the book. If you even have the slightest curiosity as to what is happening, what's going on. I mean, this is not unique to Tim Keller, by the way. Mm -hmm. There's other influential evangelical leaders out there that have well should be carefully examined um, but get the book read it it's not terribly difficult reading and if you're really wondering how scholarly it is there's gobs of footnotes pointing back to resources and and and, and whatnot so it's not just a bunch of guys got together and decided to write a book so they can make some money and if I had a guess it probably probably that probably never even came up in conversation but but you know the the point is it's it's a scholarly approach but not written you don't have to have a phd to understand what's being read uh, what's being written in these pages so get a copy of the book i'll have the link there on the website and i hope it helps people um, understand what some of these bigger issues are and um, but again i would caution people you know let's not engage in slander Let's not engage in nasty backbiting. Let's not engage in, in, in character assassination uh, as we deal with We're dealing with the issues. Yeah, that's all. Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, that's the other side of it. If, if some people have a hero worship of which they cannot even imagine any kind of critique at all, some other people would have you know a bad guy list of which you can't say anything nice about. And we hope that the church is better than that. That's right. Absolutely. And I think Christ would uh, frown. In fact, I don't think I know he would frown on our behavior if that was what we were doing. Um, people are too quick to run to the Ninth Commandment, say, oh, you're slandering when you're not. On the other hand, people are too quick to slander, and they're justly charged. So let's be careful about everything we do when it comes to these kinds of things and, and handle everything very, very carefully. Um, Dr. Schweitzer, it's been great to have you on. I know there's much more in the book that we could have talked about. Um, obviously, time and, well, time. <laughs> time doesn't allow us to do that but hopefully people will secure their own copy of the book and read these further details um, for themselves bill thank you very much you're welcome hang on the line just for a minute let me wrap things up just for those uh, for a programming note those who are maybe wondering okay what's what's coming up on confessing our hope usually at this point i say i have no idea but actually i do know <laughs> i know this time um next week will be uh, sitting down with two men from the RPCNA, that's the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America, to talk about their most recent, um, I want to say General Assembly, but I don't think that's what they call it. It might be a General Synod, but regardless, we'll be talking with them about some of the issues that they were dealing with in their denomination. Uh, shortly after that, a one week later, we'll be talking with Star Mead, who has written um, a really helpful book. Um, there seems to be a theme on Conf Confessing Our Hope lately on the subject of family worship, and she has written a book called Comforting Hearts, Teaching Minds, Family Devotions Based on the Heidelberg Catechism. And I was uh, uh, blessed with two copies of this book, which I will be giving out to a listener of choice um, on that broadcast. So um, 
anyway, that's a little snapshot of what's we're going to be dealing with in the days ahead um, as the Lord enables us and gives us grace to accomplish these things. So, as always, write in. If you have any questions, you can write me at confessingourhope at gpts.edu. You can write good things. You can write bad things. I'm fine with that. Um, it's happened before. It'll happen again. Um, but offer your comments, criticisms, or otherwise. Uh, how can we make this program better? I'm listening. Uh, I don't have all the answers on this thing, um, but I want to make it informative and helpful to the body of Christ and to you who listen um, as best I, as I'm able. So until next time, when we sit down with two gentlemen, two ministers, the RPCNA, we do thank you for listening to this broadcast, one that I, I hope and trust and pray that the Lord will use to uh, cause his people to think uh, very carefully uh, about men of influence in the church. And so until next time, we thank you for listening to this particular edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And God bless.